I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be looking at a passage there. We want you to be able to look along with us so the guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And they're marked at Genesis 2, but it's really just the first couple of pages, so you should be able to find it. Genesis 2. One of the most anticipated moments for a parent expecting a child is hearing from the doctor, it's a girl or it's a boy. Back in the day before ultrasound, you found that out when the baby was delivered. Now that magic moment comes as you view a picture of the developing baby within the mother and you're told the good news at that time. And from a biblical standpoint, either it's a boy or it's a girl is indeed good news because both are from the hand of God. And so I would discourage you from thinking too much about which it is you want or about having another until you get the one you want because both should be viewed as gifts from God and decisions that are made about how many should be based on other criteria. Now, I tried to follow that advice as the Lord allowed Kim and I to start our family. And I was blessed to hear the wonderful news, it's a girl, twice. But even so, I remember thinking the first time when Lainey was born, what am I going to do with a girl? I had three brothers and no sisters. I know absolutely nothing about girls. And then I had this profound thought. Kim's a girl. (laughs) She knows about girls. Good, we're covered. Now today, on Father's Day, I'm addressing those whose parents heard the words, it's a boy. My parents heard those words, and so did the parents of all of you boys and men who are here today. The question that all of our parents should have asked themselves at that time is, how do you make a man out of a boy? But that assumes they have some idea of what a real man is. Author Weldon Hardenbrook has identified four models of manhood that are promoted by our culture. One is what he called the macho maniac. This is Dirty Harry, Rambo, Clint Eastwood, Die Hard, Robocop 2, and so on. The idea is deny all your feelings, ignore the law, never complain, never apologize, take anything you want, and bully people. That's the macho maniac model. The second is the great pretender. This is the Archie Bunker type of person who builds up his self-worth by constantly belittling someone else, especially his wife and family. He's actually quite frightened, but he attempts to hide that fright by his constant caustic talk. The third model is the world-class wimp. This is the Dagwood Bumstead, or for those of you younger, the Homer Simpson type, who's so inept, he's constantly outwitted by his children, his wife, even his dog. Nobody takes him serious. He's a bumbling idiot. His motto is, blessed are the passive, for they shall avoid conflict at all costs. The fourth model that he presents is what he calls the gender blenders. This is the Michael Jacksons, Boy Georges, David Bowies, Prince, 
excuse me, the artist formerly known as Prince, who I think was then known as Prince, later again. That's those who are purposely androgynous. It's a kind of combination of femininity and masculinity. And I would add to that list a fifth wrong model, and perhaps many more could be offered. There's the every ladies' man, the guy who always gets the girl, and the girls all wish he was their guy. That's James Bond, that's George Clooney, that's Tom Cruise, and so on. Now, what is it about us? What is it about us that causes us to approve and gravitate toward false models of masculinity? Why are we susceptible to erroneous views of what a man should be? Well, the title of today's message is Real Men. And I want us to see the answer to those questions, but also see a brief profile of what true manhood involves. So let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we've come another week, and we thank you on this Lord's Day, on this Father's Day, Lord's Day. We thank you that we're here. We're thankful that you have created us in a desire to hear from you. And Lord, we desire then to do that very thing. We ask you, though, to aid us. Because apart from your aid, we will not. And we will go from this place unmoved and unchanged. And so we pray that you would grant us open hearts and attentive minds and a willingness to obey what your word tells us for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we have for you an outline of the message at the back of your program. So if you'll take a look at that and look at the back, I say there, the first reason that we are drawn to false models of masculinity is this, that all men are born the wrong way. All men are born the wrong way. That is, all boys and girls, but today we're focusing on the males, are born with a problem. That problem goes back to the passage to which I've asked you to turn and the beginning of human history and the first man and woman. In chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 16, God tells the first man before he's created Eve what it is that God has assigned him to do. Chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But then we all know what happened in the next chapter. The next chapter, the woman has been created. The man and the woman are tempted. And then verse 6 of chapter 3 says this, The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband and he ate it. And so they sinned, and one of the consequences was to be death in the very day that they ate of it. That's what God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't die physically that day, because the Bible tells us just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 5 and verse 5, altogether Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. So what happened on the day they sinned, the very day that they disobeyed God? God said they would die, but they didn't die physically. So how did they die that day? Well, death in the Bible means separation. And physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body, but spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. And that day in the garden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, 
They were separated from him. They died spiritually. And all of their children and all of their grandchildren's great-grandchildren since, all the way down to you and me, we are all born now separated from God. So we're born the wrong way in that we are born as sinners. People with a tendency to think and talk and act in ways that are contrary to God's original design for us. And that affects everything, including our views of what a man is to be. Now back in Genesis 2, God had told the man, Adam, what it is he is to be and do on behalf of God. Verse 15 of chapter 2 tells us what men, males, were made to do. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated work in that verse, it's an extremely common word in the Bible. It can appear as a a verb or as a noun. When it appears as a verb, it means work, serve, labor, cultivate, or perform acts of worship. When it's used as a noun, it usually indicates a servant or a worshiper. So Adam was called by God to till and cultivate the garden so it would grow and bear an abundance of fruit. Now, of course, it's not that all men are literally to work as gardeners. Rather, we are called to work whatever field God has given us. We men are to be planters, builders, and growers. A man's working life is to be spent accomplishing things, usually as part of a company or other grouping of people. We're to invest our time, our energies, our ideas, and our passions in bringing good things into being. A faithful man, then, is one who has devoted himself to cultivating, to building, to growing. Richard Phillips is the author of a book called The Masculine Mandate. And he says, take a Christian's, Christian man's professional life, for example. Our calling to work means investing ourselves in accomplishing things of value. Men should be using their gifts, talents, and experiences to succeed in worthwhile causes that, if they're married, provide for their families. That can be anything that accomplishes good. A man can make eyeglasses, do scientific research, or manage a store. The examples are almost endless. But in each case, our mandate to work means we should be devoting ourselves to building good things and accomplishing worthwhile results. There's nothing wrong with a man working simply to earn a wage, but Christians rightly want their labors to yield more than money for themselves and their families. Christian men should also desire to cultivate something worthwhile for the glory of God and the well-being of their fellow man. Of course, our garden includes not merely things, he says, but people. Men's calling to cultivate means we are to be involved in the hearts of people placed under our care. People who work for us. People we teach and mentor, and most especially our wives and children. A man's fingers should be accustomed to working in the soil of the human heart. The hearts of those he serves and loves that he might accomplish some of the most valuable and important work of his life. Now, the second of those two duties that are given in chapter 2 and verse 15 is to, to take care, sometimes translated to keep. Men are to take care of, keep what's entrusted to them by God. And the word is used in the Bible of soldiers, of shepherds, of priests, of custodians, and government officials. 
This word is used of what the Lord himself does with his people. For example, in Psalm number 121, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over. And that those two words, watch over, are the same word we have in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Take care or protect. He will take care. He will protect your life. The Lord will watch over, take care, protect your coming and going both now and forevermore. So Richard Phillips says about this, our basic mandate as Christian men is to cultivate, to build, to grow both things and people. But it's also to stand guard so that people and things are kept safe, so that the fruit of past cultivating and nurturing is preserved. To be a man is to stand up and be counted when there is danger or other evil. God does not desire for men to stand by idly and allow harm or permit wickedness to exert itself. Rather, we're called to keep others safe within the covenant relationships we enter. In our families, our presence is to make our wives and children secure and at ease. At church, we are to stand for truth and godliness against the encroachment of worldliness and error. In society, we are to take our places as men who stand up against evil and who defend the nation from the threat of danger. So that being the case, at the very beginning of human history, God tells us men what it is we're to be and to do. That being the case, if we're to be producers and protectors, then why so often are we takers and destroyers? Why do men take pride in their conquests and the so-called love them and leave them approach to relationships with women? Why should a woman be afraid of a man who was made by God to protect her? Why would college-age young men physically assault women on campuses, as so often happens, and they feel as though they're entitled to do so? The problem actually begins even before we're born, and it goes back to the time that we were conceived. Psalm 51 says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, those words were written by a man who had committed adultery. King David wrote Psalm 51 as a statement of repentance for having seen what he wanted and then just going and taking it, for having violated the seventh of the Ten Commandments, which just says very forthrightly, you shall not commit adultery. But before David committed adultery he, and broke the seventh commandment, he had desired to have a woman who was not his wife, and thereby he broke the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You see, before the act is the desire, the coveting. And the reason for the desire is that we were born with a sin nature. All men are born with a tendency to want what it's not right to have. And if they want it, then they don't have it. And if they have the power, unless they're restrained, they'll take it. King David had the power and he took it. Now you might say, I'd never do that. But Jesus says, when you look on a woman with lust, you already have. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus combined both the seventh and the tenth commandments when he said famously, you have heard that it was said, 
You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's only because of our sin nature that we look at women as objects. And we talk in locker rooms or other so-called guy talk settings about women in sexual terms. These bodies that we misuse because of sin are also bodies that are broken because of sin. That is, our bodies don't work as they were originally designed. The Bible says that one of the consequences of sin entering God's good world is our physical bodies are subject to sickness and decay and death. And so in your New Testament, Romans 8 says this, the creation was subjected to frustration and bondage to decay. This is after the entrance of sin. This is one of the consequences then of sin on the environment, upon our world, upon ourselves, our bodies. And therefore, friends, it should not surprise us that some guys and gals are born with bodies that are sexually broken such that their desires are not natural. And so their bodies do not seem to fit those desires. It's a consequence of the fall. Why do men engage in sexual desire for what God forbids? Because they're born that way. That is, they're born with a sin nature and with bodies that are broken because of that sin. In the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, Denny Burke wrote an article about this issue. I'll quote with you, quote for you just one paragraph. The only sex desire that glorifies God is that desire that is ordered to the covenant of marriage. When sexual desire, attraction, fixes on any kind of non-marital erotic activity, it falls short of the glory of God and is by definition sinful. This principle applies to the experience of both opposite sex and same-sex desire. The difference is that opposite sex desire can have the covenant of marriage as its end, but same-sex desire can never have the covenant of marriage as its end, and I would add, no matter what the government says. So why do we follow false models of masculinity? Because we're born the wrong way. And we gravitate then toward those false models. And I say in your outline as well, we're not only born the wrong way, all men are made the wrong way. Born the wrong way and made the wrong way. In addition to our nature that shows up in each of us differently, but pulls all of us away from a true model of manhood, another important factor in why we pursue unbiblical approaches is due to what's encouraged by those around us, our friends, our families, society as a whole. If boys grow up being taught that they're supposed to be wild and aggressive, they will be. And most boys don't need a whole lot of prodding to break stuff or even to break people. This was foisted on me as a boy and as a young man in a number of ways. One was in sports, which I enjoyed to play, usually. Now, I'm sure it's different now, since you can't even ride a bike in front of your house without a helmet these days. And just as an aside, any guy in here over 40 knows what I mean when I say, if you showed up to your friends to go on a bike ride with a helmet, 
you would need more than a helmet to protect you from what they were going to do to you. So perhaps we've gone a bit far with the safety thing, but back when I was a kid, we probably could have used a bit more safety consciousness. I remember a, a hockey drill we would do in practice where the coaches would just line up guys opposite each other and you were to skate as fast as you could and run into the other guy. I recall a kid on our team whose dad had played some minor league hockey. And his dad was sure that he could have made it to the pros had he not gotten injured. Nobody worse than that dad. The guy who knows he could have made it and now he has a boy and that boy's going to make it. But first, he had to make a man out of him. And this kid's dad was a hulk of a man, but his boy was, was quite small and slight, smaller than most of the other players. His dad worked him like crazy and, as I look back at it, I think physically abused him to, quote, make a man out of him. I remember sitting in a chapel service at the Christian school that I attended in high school and hearing the preacher talk about who a real, how a real man walks. How a real man walks. He said he doesn't take steps. The preacher said he strides. And he gave us a demonstration as he strode across the front of the auditorium. And he said, you boys need to learn to walk like men and carry yourselves like men. I recall an evangelist shortly after the first Iraq war, Desert Storm, referring to General Norman Schwarzkopf as Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf, a man's man. Now, I have absolutely nothing against the late general, but I don't think he would have thought of himself as the epitome of masculinity. I mean, consider this, friends, as we set up those kinds of models. What about the young man in our churches who doesn't naturally gravitate to that? Most guys were not jocks at school. I know one pastor friend who removed his kids from a Christian school because of what he saw as the overemphasis on sports. His boys were brainiacs and they weren't into that at all. And the fundamentalism that I'm familiar with was full of this kind of machismo that was passed off as biblical masculinity. I want to read for you some passages from a book by one of the fundamentalist leaders of the past, but not too distant past. He's now deceased. I'll mention his name at the end of the sermon. But at one time, he had the largest church in America. Started a Bible college, and that Bible college has spawned his ilk all over the country. He wrote a little book called Strength and Beauty that I have on my shelf. Any of you that have been in my office, you'll see shelves there. Sometimes people will come in and go, really, you like this guy? Well, not everybody on the shelf are guys I like. Sometimes I have them on there for negative illustrations like this one. As I was thinking about this message, I took that book off the shelf. He's got a chapter called How to Make a Man Out of a Boy. He says, my only son is 16 at the time he wrote it. God has called him to be a preacher and he's already preparing for the ministry. I'm not trying to make a preacher out of him. I'm trying to make a man out of him. For I can, if I can make a man out of him, God can make him a preacher. We have too many preachers now who are not men, he says. I've spent thousands of hours trying to make a man out of my son. The words that follow will explain 
how I've tried and the methods that I've used. And then he goes on to give about 16 different methods. I'm not going to bore you with all of those. But in one of them, he says, if you're going to make a man out of a boy, make him fulfill all obligations. When my boy was three and four years of age, I started teaching him to pay his bills promptly and to fulfill his obligations completely. Let me stop here. He's three and four and he had bills to pay? I would ask him, son, if a debt is due on the first of the month, when are you going to pay it? He would say, on the first of the month. And then I would ask, son, if an emergency arises and you cannot meet your obligation, what are you supposed to do? He would then reply, I'm supposed to go to the person I owe, shake his hand, look him in the eye, and have an understanding as to what can be done. He goes on to say, if you're going to make a man out of a boy, teach him to want to win. He says, we've stressed to our children, be a good loser, be a good loser, be a good loser, until we have rubbed this good loser bit in the ground. I taught my boy to play to win. We have bragged on good losers until our boys have received more rewards for losing gracefully than winning properly. The result has been that now we have a nation of young people who do not want to fight for their country and who are willing to let the strongest nation on earth bow down to smaller nations. It's tragic but true that I know hundreds of men who couldn't beat their wives at Chinese checkers. I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> Junior has been taught to be a good loser. He's been rewarded for being a good loser, so winning becomes less and less important. I was approached by a pastor in Rockford, Illinois. He was somewhat effeminate and less than a man. He came to me with his dainty voice and said, Can I ask you a question? You strike me as being a very poor loser. Is that true? I looked at him, paused for a moment, and I answered, Son, I don't know. I ain't never lost. If you're going to make a man of your boy, teach him to be a winner. This is where we get our General MacArthur's. Teach your boy to want to win. Friends, long before there was Donald Trump, there were fundamentalist preachers. He goes on to say, teach your boy to defend himself. Teach him how to fight. Teach him to be rugged enough to defend his own, his home, his loved ones, and his, and his friends. He says, when my son was just five years of age, I bought him a pair of boxing gloves. This is, he can only box after he paid his bills, I'm sure. But In fact, I bought one pair for him and one pair for the boy across the street. I got them together and I let them box. The boy punched my son in the nose. My son wanted to quit, but I wouldn't let him. I was going to teach him how to defend himself, how to be a man, physically a man, emotionally a man, mentally a man, spiritually a man. He learned to fight until now he can protect his sisters. One day when he was about nine, I looked out through the upstairs window and saw him across the street straddling a little fellow and beating him up. He was hitting him right in the face until blood was coming. I ran down the stairs, out the door, across the street. I pulled him off. Son, what in the world are you doing? He looked up with quivering lips and with anger in his eyes, and he said, Dad, he was calling Linda a dirty name. I said, then get back on him and let him have it. When I walked away, he was back on him, beating him up. God pity this weak-kneed generation which stands for nothing, fights for nothing, and dies for nothing, he says. He says, if you're going to make a man out of a boy, teach him how to take suffering, pain, and punishment. This is one of the reasons he says, I like sports. 
When my son was just five years old, I got a baseball, went out in the yard, knocked him grounders, and gave him a quarter for every one he could catch. He didn't make a single quarter. I hit them too hard. They bounced up and hit him in the chest, in the nose, in the hand, and in the shoulder. He came in bruised and broken, but more a man. And on it goes. Wow, I wonder, I wonder how that boy turned out. It would be easy in that kind of environment for a boy to conclude. If that's the profile of a man and that's not what I am, then maybe I'm not a man. The issue of whether you're a man, friends, is not whether you meet some extra biblical profile created by society or preachers, but whether you are biologically a male. Contrary to what some are saying today and what our present president recently imposed on 50 states by executive action, it's not a matter of how you identify yourself, but rather what you were identified as when you were born. And, you know, the nurses had a surefire way of determining whether to put male or female on your birth certificate. Now, I don't think I need to go into too much detail about that. But suffice it to say, they identified you as a male the same way the Bible does. Genesis 17, every male among you must be circumcised. But as sinners, we're all born with particular struggles that manifest themselves differently in different people. So be that as it is. We all need an environment. We all need people around us. We all need a society that will tell us That just because you're born with a struggle does not mean it's okay to stay that way. We need people who will tell us not to use how we were born as an excuse for how we behave. The last thing we need is fathers like that of the Stanford student who was recently convicted of raping an unconscious girl and then a travesty of justice was sentenced to just six months in jail. Perhaps you read that his father said that's a steep price to pay for, quote, 20 minutes of action. Through your heredity, through my heredity, how we were born, through our environment, what we're told about who and what we are. These are the most powerful human forces in our lives. But the good news is there's a force that's much more powerful that can change what you were born with. So men are born the wrong way, all of us. And we're made the wrong way in the false messages that we receive from those around us about what masculinity is. But Christian men are different. And I have that in your outline. Men are born the wrong way in general. Men are made the wrong way in general. But Christian men are born again the right way. That word, born again, that Jesus used in John chapter 3, you must be born again. It means literally to be born from above. Jesus said in John 3, as he spoke to this religious leader, Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You need a spiritual birth from above that comes not from your physical parents, but from God. You're born from above, that is, you're given spiritual life that changes your desires and your values and your allegiances. 
It doesn't mean that lust goes away this side of heaven. But it does mean that lust and other sinful tendencies no longer have power over you. You change, but that change begins from the inside out when you give your life to Christ. We'll offer an opportunity for you to do that at the end of our time together. Men, all men, are born the wrong way. And they're made the wrong way. Christian men are born again the right way. And then I say in your outline, Christian men are remade the right way. You see, society around us, the messages we receive, the instruction we're given is often wrong. But a Christian man who is born again, who has given his life to Christ, now listens to another set of instructions. He's remade the right way. He looks to the Bible to see what his role is and how he's to carry it out. And the Bible says at least these four things that I have for you in your outline. That Christian men lead. Christian men lead. The Bible says explicitly in Ephesians 5, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, whenever this subject of roles within the home comes up, there are always people who object, often because they misunderstand or perhaps, tragically, they've seen it abused. So let me quickly make clear that the Bible teaches that men and women are equal before God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them both equally in the image of God. Both male and female were made to reflect the character of God, that is, reflect his image. And therefore, before God, men and women are equal spiritually. Neither man nor woman possesses any spiritual superiority. In fact, the Bible is quite explicit about this spiritual equality. Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's not only no spiritual superiority, there's no intellectual superiority either. Although we men might be afraid to admit it, we know that most of us are way overmarried. Our wives are every bit as smart as we are, and perhaps smarter. It's certainly true in my marriage. God created man and woman equal, but with different roles. And the man's role is to lead in the home. Now, given that God created this relationship to be something beautiful and something to be mutually satisfying, it's amazing how few marriages enjoy the benefits of this loving leadership because all too few men actually exercise it. One of the reasons for the failure of men to lead in a godly fashion goes all the way back to the beginning. In fact, the very first sin entered our world due to a lack of leadership on the part of the first man, Adam, and that lack of leadership has plagued us men ever since. We saw in chapter 2 and verse 15 that God gave Adam instructions on the cultivation of the garden, and he gave one restriction. This was all done before Eve was created. Adam apparently passed this on to his wife because she was aware of it when the serpent speaks to her in chapter 3. But it's interesting that the conversation is between the serpent and the woman. So where's the guy who was originally given the instruction? Where is Adam? Maybe he's not around. But there's a phrase in verse 6, 
of chapter 3 that could easily go unnoticed. Verse 6 of chapter 3, Eve gave some to her husband, notice, who was with her. And he ate it. So who's leading this? Eve is. Is it because her husband's not around to speak up? No, it's in direct contradiction to his God-given responsibility to lead his family for God in a God-honoring direction. And Adam is silent in the face of spiritual attack on his family. And as a result, notice then God's punishment on Adam in verse 17 of chapter 3. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And God goes on to give the consequences. We've inherited from our first parent, Adam, men, this tendency to be passive in our leadership. The silence of Adam has been passed on to his sons. Many men abdicate the responsibility to lead to their wives. And you see it in all sorts of ways. It partly explains the infamous male, what I call the infamous male grunt. You know what I'm talking about? It's the same guy who can yell like a wild man when watching his favorite team on TV. But he can barely utter an audible syllable when his wife and kids are around. How often do you see a family going into a store or a restaurant and the guy is walking 10 feet behind or 10 feet ahead of? The gal is trying to carry the kids in. He's on his cell phone talking to his buddies about what they're going to be doing later. When they're in the restaurant, she does all the talking and he looks for all, all the world like he's being forced to participate at all. Men, we tend to retreat into our favorite enclaves, often in front of the TV, of course, with the remote. or in our so-called man cave. Or we retreat into work, the garage, our hobbies, our fantasies, whatever. And all the while, your family is begging you to lead. Your children are in desperate need of your leadership. And I'm convinced that most of our wives are dying inside just waiting for us to step to the plate and lead. Christian men lead. But here's how they lead, secondly. They lead lovingly. Christian men lead lovingly. Male leadership is not domination. Because of the effects of sin on our marriages, most men who do lead do it in a self-serving, domineering manner. And this also goes back to the beginning. So our tendency is to be passive and not lead at all, or if we do lead, do it in a domineering way. In chapter 3 again, and verse 16 of Genesis, as God is giving consequences for sin. He says to the woman, in verse 16, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And it's not saying that your desire will be for your husband sexually. And here's how we know that. Because the same Hebrew phrase that's translated desire for your husband in chapter 3 and verse 16 is also used in the next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7. And there, God approaches Cain after he has murdered his brother Abel. And God says to him in verse 7, he says, Cain, sin desires to have you, but you must master it. 
When it says sin must desire, sin desires to have you. Same phrases in chapter 3 and verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. That is, sin wants to control you. And there's going to be a tendency now as a result of sin for the roles to be reversed. And men then to respond to that with sinful, oppressive leadership. But far from seeking to dominate our wives for our own ends, Christian men and husbands are to exercise loving leadership in the home as they love their wives, the Bible says, as Christ loved the church. Christian men lead, but they lead in a particular way for the benefit of those God has placed under them, their wives and their children. They lead lovingly. Thirdly, Christian men take responsibility. And what I mean here is that men, we need to be willing to own up to our failures. There's not a man here who has not blown it at some time or another with our wives or kids. We perhaps made foolish decisions that have cost our families dearly. Decisions about money, career, moving, whatever that turned out to be wrong. Or we failed by blatant sin. Abusing those we're supposed to love verbally and or physically. Perhaps we've even broken the covenant of marriage in adultery. Or we've insulted our wives' womanhood by engaging in pornography. It's not a matter of whether we failed, but in what manner and how often. So how, men, do you respond when, not if, you failed your family? Unfortunately, many of us respond by blaming someone or something else. Well, if she was the kind of wife she ought to be, if she would get off my back, and all of this goes back to the beginning as well. Again, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11, the Lord asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent. So the blame shifting begins and has gone on for millennia since. Christian men lead. They lead lovingly. They take responsibility. And lastly, Christian men are like Jesus. You see, the role of the model of masculinity that we should look to men is not what we're told on TV, not what the fundamentalist preachers said. It's not what society is currently telling us, that masculinity doesn't matter. Being a male doesn't matter. It matters to God. But we're all different in terms of how that's going to express itself. But all of that needs to be expressed with Jesus as the model. Christian men are like Jesus. The reason that I've titled this message Real Men is because we are not what we were made to be. Sin has altered our character from that which God intended so that we're a poor imitation of real manhood. But Jesus Christ restores what has been lost. You remember that we were originally made in the image of God? That means we were made to reflect the character of God. But because of the entrance of sin into God's world, that image has been marred so that we are not a true, real reflection of God's character. But Jesus is God. And Jesus is the perfect image of God. The Bible says Christ 
is the image of God. And those who know Christ are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. So listen, guys, you don't have to drift without knowing how to play your role or to attempt to escape because you're afraid to play your role. You need to be with other men and women who can support each other in their God-given tasks. And that's, by the way, what the part of what the church is about. So men, I've told you all these bad things about us. <laughs> We're messed up. Our messed up nature is reinforced by people around us. But I've tried to give you the good news. We can be reborn and remade into then the image of God. And we as the church are here to help you. We have community groups where you can be with men and ladies. You can be with ladies who are striving to be what God intended us to be. We have men's breakfast, guys. Next month, we're going to have that purity seminar Friday night and Saturday. Men, I encourage you to register for that. We have growth partners, one-on-one discipleship. I'm doing a class in the fall on parenting called Parenting with Purpose. It starts September 11th. We're here to help you. And with all of that, here's your take-home truth. A real man is a man of God. A real man is a man of God. Now, I told you about that preacher and he wrote that book and how to make a man out of a boy. Well, that guy's name was Jack Hiles. Some of you know that name. And he founded a Bible college in Indiana called Hiles Anderson College. One time the largest church in the country, First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. That boy that he talked about in that book was his son David. I wonder how that boy turned out. Here's what a magazine in Chicago detailed about all of the scandals that came out of that church and involved Hiles and his family and his staff and many of the guys who graduated from his college. In the early 1980s, David Hiles, then in his 20s, was the youth pastor at First Baptist. Whispers began that he was having an affair with the daughter of a high-level administrator at Hiles Anderson College. Backed into a corner by a he-goes-or-I-go ultimatum from the administrator, sources say Hiles arranged for his son to take over as pastor at his old church in Texas. The new pastor was soon kicked out after allegations that he had more than a dozen affairs with church women, many of them married. His wife, Paula, divorced him. He returned to the Chicago area, to Bolingbrook, Illinois, moving in with a woman named Brenda Stevens. In 1985, Stevens' 15-month-old son, Brent, was found lifeless in his crib. The autopsy revealed trauma and numerous broken bones in various stages of healing. The Illinois Department of Children and Family Services investigated, but the cause of death could not be determined. At a grand jury inquest, David Hiles exercised his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Stevens didn't show. The case remains unsolved. A former investigator, now in private practice, says he's still pursuing leads. Scandal followed the younger Hiles still yet. He was chased from a job running the Sunday school at a church in Florida over allegations of more affairs. But not before a child he fathered with Stevens 
died under odd circumstances. According to news reports, Stevens, by this time had become his wife, told police she mistakenly ran over the five-year-old Jack David, who had rolled out of the door of her car. She was never charged with a crime, nor was Hiles. Now, I read that sad, sordid, sorry tale to you. To show you, friends, what a tragedy can occur when we follow models of masculinity that are outside the Bible and we make up and impose our own rules about what men are supposed to be. And men, why would we do this when God has given us very clear instructions in his word about what he has made us to be and to do? But the only way we will do that is if we are born from above. If we have been made spiritually alive. And here's when that happens. It happens when you realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus has done what you could not do for yourself in his life and then his death on the cross. And you repent of your sin. I give my life to you, Lord. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Now, men, none of you out there sitting, none of, none of us standing up here. Do any of this perfectly. In this side of heaven, none of us will. But the question for you is, is that what you desire in your heart of hearts? Has your heart been made spiritually alive by God? Are you born again? And if you are, then you desire above all else to please God as a man in your family. So let's take this time to bow. And if you've never come to Christ, this is your opportunity to do that. If you don't have that desire, if you're here today only because your wife is leading spiritually in your home and she drags you along, you're not born again, guys. Let's stop kidding. You need to be born. You must be born again. And to those of us that are, let us thank God for Jesus Christ who makes us and remakes us into the men we were designed to be. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for meeting with us again this Lord's Day and allow us, allowing us to look into your word and what you say about what you created we men to be. Lord, we ask you to help us then. Grant us your gracious aid to become day by day and week by week the men that we were made to be, being remade into the image of the ultimate man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own, in fact, you tell us very clearly, apart from you, we can do nothing. And you are the one who moves upon our hearts and by your Holy Spirit draws our hearts away from the affections and allurements of the world and to yourself. And I pray that you're doing that now. I ask you to do that now in the hearts of some men in this room who came in here without spiritual life. And I ask you to grant them the spiritual life that only you can give. And then I ask you, Lord, to begin working in them as you work in all of your men and women from the inside out, creating desires in us to be like Jesus. And then, Lord, help us with all of the effort that we can muster by your grace to pursue you, to come hard after Christ. And as a church, to gather together and to uphold one another and support one another and help one another in this arduous yet joyful task of pleasing you with our lives. And Lord, 
If those things could be started today, some men coming to you who didn't know you, other men making commitments to you who have been drifting from you, if those things could happen today, it would be a most blessed Father's Day indeed. We pray all of this now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.